0: Job. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God and they are all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job,
1: his servant, showing how righteous and good he is.
0: And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan who's this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants.
1: So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job.
0: And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals this devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of
1: Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help.
0: And all of them are like, Job, you must have
1: done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so... You must
0: be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't
1: tell Job about the conversation with the Satan.
0: Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see.
1: Then to conclude... God shows Job two wondrous
0: beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world.
1: And then that's it. That's God's whole defense.
0: It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to.
1: So where does this leave us?
0: Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet, he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But
1: that's not where the book ends. Because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is
0: God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom.
1: And that's the book of Job.
2: So there you go. Hey, grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job. Would you do that? You might be thinking, well, there you go. Let's go. Lunch. Lunchtime. Uh, hey, how about this? It's one thing to know the story. It's quite another thing to interpret the story. This is true about us. It's true about me. A lot of us know our story. Very few of us have actually uh, gotten into you know, deep, a deep dive interpreting our own story and what God is doing. What is he up to in our lives? And, of course, we all find ourselves in the midst of the bigger story of God. So we're going to jump into the book of Job, the epic story of pain and suffering. Now, most of us know that it's something like that. You may not know that it is one of the great masterpieces of literature of all time. It's praised as one of the greatest pieces of literature. In fact, Victor Hugo, he was the French poet. You might know that he wrote Les Mis, Les Miserables. And um, which became then, uh, arguably, in my opinion, the greatest musical of all time. But anybody else? No? Okay. All right. Um, so, um, come on, grace and the law. I mean, it's just amazing. Anyway, uh, he said this Tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. How about that? Lord Tennyson said this. I don't even think he was a person of faith. He says, the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature. Daniel Webster said, the book of Job, taken as a mere work of literary genius, is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or of any language. Peter Kreeft, a great theologian, wrote this. It is terrifying and beautiful, beautifully terrifying and terrifyingly beautiful beautiful. Why does the book of Job prompt such praise, even from those who are not believers or practicing Christians, perhaps? Most of us know that the book of Job is about pain and suffering and then our response to it. And you realize this, do you not? That the book of Job really is our story. It's like the Bible. When you read it every now and then you go, oh, oh my gosh, this is about me. This is not just about Job. This is about me. And that's how we're going to approach this this book. We're going to say, what is God saying to me? That's how he approaches the scriptures, right? But not many of us know the real depth of the book. And so throughout the next couple of months, month and a half, we're going to take a deep dive into this book. And, and I, again, I want to encourage, I want to challenge you to be here every single day as we mine the treasures that are found here. And today what I'm going to do, I'm going to offer really a summary of the book and then we're going to come back each week and we're going to unpack certain aspects of it. Today, we're going to talk about this juxtaposition of heaven and earth. One of the reasons we don't often approach Job as one of our favorite books is because it's so challenging, so difficult, um, so real, right? Um, God doesn't play around in the book of Job. He asks all of the hard questions of life through this man. Um, but uh, what a lot of us don't do, I think, too often is we don't look at the Old Testament as much as we look at, and, and understandably so. We look at Christ and the Gospels, and, and he is the one to whom all of Scripture points. Um, but I love what Paul said in Romans fifteen four. He said, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might Have hope. The book is written to give us hope. You may know that Job, arguably some say, is the oldest could be that one of the oldest books in the Bible. During the time of Abraham, there aren't any real historical context or reference points, so it's hard to tell where uh, this book lands. But many believe, because of the Hebrew in it, that's difficult to translate, it is an old, old book, one of the oldest writings. Uh, on the planet, so what I want to do look at, look at uh, chapter one job chapter one i 'm going to look at the prologue setting up the story, and again, you saw some of the story there but here 's how this thing sets up. If this were a play and it 's written like a poem, um, if, it were, if it were a play we 'd have two big spotlights up here okay in fact, here we go we 've got one coming down on us right here, and on one side of the of the stage you 've got uh, job and his little life all right, and all that 's happening there in the first um, five verses really play out, lay out who Job is, what's up. In fact, just look at this. On the one side of the stage with the light shining on him is Job. He's living in the end of, land of us. He's not an Israelite. He's not in Israel. He's far away, in fact, from God's, from the promised land where ultimately the story will find us. Um, Not this story, but the history of God's redemptive work. And then he's there, and he is blameless and upright, it says in verse 1. He feared God and turned away from evil. Now, this is an important point that we heard already. The writer goes to great lengths to point out that Job, Job is blameless. He has done nothing to deserve what is coming his way. This is a key point, and yet it was the only theological framework his friends have, and we're going to see that. And by the way, it's even those of us who know God is loving, who understand his grace, we're prone to run run that way too, right? Whatever you're walking through today, and what I want you to do during this sermon throughout is to think, yes, what, and maybe you don't have to think long, do you? Uh, What are my struggles today? What's creating anxiety and worry, pain and suffering in my life? And I want you to think about that. Because in it, we often think as Christians, and many of us are here, and we we say, Lord, I've given you my life. I mean, I'm trusting you. I'm even reading the Bible. I'm praying, and yet look at what's happening to me. This is not right. This is not fair. We tend to go that way ourselves. So Job is not so far removed from us. Nor are his friends who are not going to give him great advice. So then it says here, the, over here on this side of the stage, he's got seven sons, three daughters. I mean, he is blessed, sign of blessing. He's got 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. It's just, a, a, I mean, the wealthiest is, is the greatest. He's the wealthiest man on earth, essentially, at least of all the people in the East. And his sons would hold feasts. He even had this special relationship with the family. I mean, they loved him and they loved being together. You It's one thing to have a bunch of kids. It's quite another for them all to honor you and love you as they're now older. And so they come together. And then when they'd leave, he would go out the next morning and offer offerings to the Lord to say, you know what, if I've sinned, or how about this, if any of my kids have sinned and they don't know it and they need to come and make, you know, make amends and, and get right with you, I'm going to do it on their behalf. He becomes their advocate. He is blameless. Then it says in verse, uh, yes, for, for it said here, it may, it may in verse, uh, verse five, it, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job continually did. He did it constantly. So on one side, you are seeing Job and you see this picture of a righteous man, a great life. On the other side of the stage, uh, there's another light and it comes on God and the Satan, the accuser, the obstructive one is who he is. The adversary. Now you might have seen, you know, in that image there that we saw earlier, you're going, wait, who are these? What? You know, like before all this, these people coming before God, they're angelic beings, the sons of men, and, and Satan is among them. But the language is such, you notice God is the initiator. If you're wondering, wait, what is, what is God and Satan? They're like, they're like buddies, they're hanging out together. No, no, no. He's actually not supposed to be there. He's the obstructive one, and God says, "God speaks, not Satan first. God says, hey, what are you doing here? And and Satan steps forward, and he says, well, I just happen to be roaming the earth. So on this side of the stage, we've got the spiritual realm, okay? God and Satan in dialogue, setting up the whole story. Job over here living his life, he knows nothing about what's going on over here. This is the story of our lives. We know much of what's happening because of Scripture. The Spirit does intercede on our behalf. God, Christ does. He he is at work in our lives. There is a spiritual realm that is is all about us and all over us. And there's a sovereign God who's at work in your life in ways that you cannot see. So sovereign is he that he actually gives Satan a leash. I mean, a long leash to say, okay, okay, because watch what happens. He comes to him and the Satan, the accuser... He comes out and the Lord says to him, hey, wh- wh- where are you coming from? He says, I'm, I've, been, I've been going to and fro. And, and it's like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, like a lion. I'm going to and fro about the earth. I'm seeking one to devour. And watch this. Here's what's so crazy. It's God who says, what about my boy Job? Satan you know, doesn't bring this up. He says, have you, you considered Job? There's nobody like him on earth. God is setting Job up. Watch this. To ultimately bring Job to himself and to bring glory to himself. Though it's hard to understand. Look at my servant Job. There's nobody like him. He's blameless and upright. This is where, see, God even says that he is. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? When I came to understand this book, because it was a mystery to me. And I didn't like reading the book of Job. I thought, this is crazy. I get lost in all the cycles of questions and answers throughout much of the book. It's one of the longest books uh, in in the Bible. And you just get lost in it. But the key to unlock this book is found in that question right there, verse 9. This is the portal into which we look and see the entire book. When I realized how this question opened up the entire book, it blew me away. You can see it in Job chapter 1, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Why is this such a significant question? He's saying, saying, no wonder Job worships you. Look at how blessed he is. He's got his health. He's got a great family. He has all this wealth. No wonder he thinks you're awesome. He's just going to keep praising you, right? And the question implies so much. There's all kinds of theological threads that run with this question. Because think about it. Does Job worship God truly because uh, he's God? or does he worship God because of all that he's done for him? Here's how the question lands. Does, do, do we worship God because of what He's done, or hasn't done, right? I, I, I'm, I got good health, you hadn't come on me, you hadn't taken away my kids, you hadn't, I hadn't lost a job, or whatever it might be in our lives, or do we worship Him simply because He's God? Now clearly God has done much for us. He's given us life. We're here because of him. And we could go all the way, and we will. He has, he's come to reveal himself to us. In Christ, Christ has taken our sin upon the cross. Even before that, he lives the perfect life that we could not live. And so Christ becomes our substitute. We, can, we worship him, yes, because of what he's done. He died, he was buried, he was raised again so that we might follow him in eternal life and be raised up. We have a new identity, as we've been singing this morning. He's done much for us to worship him but really at the heart of worship is this worshiping god not because of what he's done or hasn't done but simply because he's god think about this if we worship him because of what he's done for us you name it you 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 worship him you you praise him you're blessed by him because of your possessions because of a position or power, or because of, how about this, your family, all your good health, the good things that you have. If you worship him because of those things, or if you pursue God in order that he might bless you, and a lot of people do. In fact, this one theological thread runs here is the prosperity gospel. that says, if you worship God, if you'll give and be good enough, he will bless you. Do this, this, and this, and this, and pray enough, and go to church, and all that good stuff. He'll bless you. And that's not the gospel. Watch this. If we follow after God and worship him because of all of these things, God becomes a means to another end, right? I'm not worshiping God. I'm worshiping those things. I'm worshiping that, whatever that might be in your life. And listen, we all have those things. So the question is raised, how would we know? How would we know if Job worships God? Simply because he's God or because of all that he has. You tracking with me? There's only one way. Have it taken away from him. It's true in your life too. And if you're thinking, this doesn't sound like it's going to go well for me. (laughs) It probably won't. I've come to realize that my sanctification... Uh, My becoming like Jesus, which is his ultimate goal in my life, and, and it is mine on my best days. That's my hope. I've come to realize that the sanctification process is God simply stripping away one idol in my life after another. And as we talk about often, our idols are often very good things. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to say God is at work in your life through your suffering. Through your challenges. They may be real physical challenges. They may be mental challenges. Right? We all have physical health in varying degrees. We have mental health at different seasons and times of our lives. Uh, we, we struggle with anxiety. We struggle with worry. And often our anxieties point us to our idols. Because we start to fear losing that thing. Or people aren't thinking that I'm all that, whatever that is. You see how the depth of this book takes us right to the heart of Worship. And so it teaches us that so often it was Voltaire's statement, his sentiment, when he said God created man in his image. And then we've been trying to return the favor ever since. We've created God in our image. He's going to operate on my terms. And if I'm good, he's going to bless me. And and, 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 and if if suffering is taking place in my life or if if I'm going through some real challenges in my heart or head or life, it must be because of me. And, and for those of us who are believers, we're like, I must not be spiritual enough. Is what the problem is, right? And we get into this downward spiral, when in reality, no, 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 God is at work. And so, so really, at the heart of it is, we've got to trust Him. Uh, it's, someone said, when you can't see His hand, you trust His heart. What do you know about Him? And this is what we need to be reminded of today, where all of this lands. I want you to see every week, and especially today, He is good. And he is loving and he has your best interest in mind. He loves you so much that he wants you to come to him and to him alone because he knows that only there will you experience happiness and joy and stop pursuing all of these lame gods that you're running after that will never fill you up and never satisfy you. So too often God becomes a means to another end. But watch where this story goes. So you know what happens. You know what happens. Um, Job. So then God says, okay, let's go. And so at the end of, let's see, verse 12, it's game on. God says, let's let's do this. And Job knows nothing about this, right? Now, here's what happens. And we'll bust through this rather quickly. But verse 13, we're, we're not even out of chapter one yet. And the whole story is, is unraveling because he's, he's, there's a day when his sons and daughters are eating and drinking. They're having a big time uh, drinking wine because... People drank wine back then. Evidently, Baptists even did so back then. Um, in their oldest brother's house, and, uh, and there came a messenger to Job. So a messenger comes. There's going to be a series of four messengers who are going to run. One of them comes and says, man, your oxen, uh, your donkeys, uh, they were all, the Sabaeans fell on them. So they were murdered and robbed and violence. And, and all of this has come, and all the servants died. And I, I'm the only one. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I came to tell you what took place. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. And then secondly, another servant comes while he's still speaking. Is how the story goes. And a fire fire came. And look at this. The fire of God came, it says. Fell on uh, from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. They're all gone. I came to tell you, I'm the last one standing out of that group. The Chaldeans have come. Three groups, they raided your camels. This is all signs of wealth. He loses all of his wealth. And then in verse 18, while that one's speaking, another one comes. And he says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking. They were in the oldest brother's house. A great wind came. Was it a you know some natural disaster? And the whole place was wiped out. The house fell on them, and all of them are dead. All of your family is dead. All of your wealth is gone. And in verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head because that's... How he's really going to be handsome, looking really good and fly. And then, so he shaved his head and actually it was a sign of, of, um, a sign of mourning. And, and he tears his clothes. He falls on the ground and it says, and he worshiped God. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb. I came out with nothing. I'm going to leave this earth with nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then again, Parenthetically, the writer says, hey, listen, listen, listen. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So we're done with chapter 1, and you're like, okay, Satan brings the challenge, lays down the the mantle, and, uh, and, and he goes through the gauntlet. Bam, Job wins, game over. Job, right? And this is amazing. And yet we know the story's not over. Because then in chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God. So it happens again. In fact, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 are exactly like chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Here comes another. Another grit They're coming at him again. He said, where you been? I've been roaming the earth. He says, well, look, Job, he still, he still holds fast, integrity. And now, now he says, Satan says, in verse 4 of chapter 2, skin for skin. He's saying, a man, you come after his health. He will curse you and he will no longer worship you. And amazingly, mysteriously, God says, Okay, just don't take his life. I mean, it's almost like take him right up to the point of death, but don't take his life. We'll see what happens. So Satan does. And then in verse 9, after he's got all these sores all over his life, I mean it's, it's horrible. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak, would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. How about that? Now, much could be said about his wife. We kind of diss on his wife, but she's been through a lot of suffering as well. If you've ever walked along someone. How about this? She lost her kids. She lost everything she had. And so we, we deal with suffering and pain and struggle, don't we, differently? If we're married, oftentimes that's how it goes. But his wife was almost like a widow. She lost her husband. And she's saying, enough of this. I can't handle this anymore. Curse God and die along with me. She actually becomes kind of the voice of Satan where he's able to respond. Because Satan's gone. He doesn't show up anymore. Satan does his business. Bam, he's out. I'm going to take out somebody else. And so she becomes here and his friends become the voice to which he is responding is what's happening here. And so, uh, the, the story goes on and here's what I want to do quickly kind of run us through. These cycles of questions come then with his friends and we're going to dive back into this. Why you need to keep coming back in chapter two and beyond. So in chapter 23, you don't have to turn there, um, Job, finally, after hearing this cycle of questions, he responds to his friends. All of his friends basically say, you must have done something wrong because there's no other theological framework that we have here. You have done something wrong in order to get all this, so we don't know what it is. Job can't get an answer, and the writer has continued to tell him, no, he hasn't, and Job's arguing, I haven't. And then in chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, look at this. You can see it on the screen. Then Job answered and said, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. These are are kind of judicial or courtroom kind of terms he's using here. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. See, Job wants to, he wants someone, even himself, to adjudicate his claim before the judge. He wants to sit in the seat and he wants to defend himself and ask questions of God. Now, then God in chapter 38, in fact, you could turn there, turn to chapter 38, God comes to him and he says, okay, after all of his complaining and kind of whining and questions and they're legit in chapter 38, we catapult all the way to chapter 38 and then Job, and then God says to him, he says, okay, uh, you want, you want to ask me some questions? You've got questions. He says here, uh, look at chapter one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So God finally speaks. Verse two. Who is this that counsel, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's saying, why are you trying to counsel me on something you don't know anything about? I mean, he's been asking, I wish I could come before God. I I would lay out some stuff before him. This is not fair. I'm going to ask the creator of the universe all these questions. And God says, okay, put on your big boy pants and come step before me and let's talk about this. And he comes then and takes him on, yes, a virtual tour of the universe. He says in verse 3, dress for action. That's my, yeah on your big boy pants, like a man, dress like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. You answer me. God is basically going to say to him now through a multitude of questions here, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? And I don't mean that he's unloving. I'm just saying, he's going to say, okay, let's go for your good. Watch this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He said, were you you here when when all things were created? Because uh, as we heard last week from Alistair McGrath, there's a moment in time. The universe has not always been eternal. God is eternal. He created the world and he says, where were you, Job, when I laid out the expanse of the universe, when I said the earth is going to be this far? And he goes on to say, were you there when I commanded the waters to come and to go up to the shore and to stop right there? Why didn't they keep going? Were you there when the stars were put out into the sky? And, and we start to learn, oh, it's amazing, kind of things about it, creation. Back in the day before telescopes and microscopes and everything else, and we're reading, God is telling him what's up. From the very minute, um, almost to the microcosm of the world, or, my, or microscopic elements of the world, all the way to the macro. And he takes him on this tour. He says, have you been to the bottom of the ocean? I mean, some of you like me, you know, planet Earth, you know, the BBC's planet Earth. They also did uh, blue planet. you seen this incredible stuff. They're seeing creatures and animals at the bottom of the sea that we've never seen before. How many, how many creatures are out there, even at the microscopic level or, or who knows? Uh, you know, when you start talking about multiverse, right? Uh, all these other universes, perhaps, we don't know. There's no, there's no evidence of it, but could it be that God's, he's so big, right? There aren't, any, there aren't just billions of billions of stars and billions and billions of galaxies. But could it be that, that there is just all kinds of things we don't know anything about because we're like a little teeny spot on this planet in the universe. And God sees it all, is what he tells Job. He says, were you there when, when I decided that the rain would fall? Do you know where the storehouses of snow are? Do you call out the lightning? Are you the one who says, bam, right there, go. Go now. He's naming the lightning bolts. He's the one who does this. He even says to him, I send, I love this. He says, I send rain in places where nobody lives. What is he saying? He's saying, Job, I am at work. I'm allowing my blessing and my love to come upon the earth in ways you can't even see or don't even know about. Because nobody lives there. He says, have you seen the goats being born up in the mountains? Do you, see the, do you see the bear who has little baby cubs? I'm guiding the bear. I know when they're born. Right now, up in the mountains of Colorado or somewhere up in Alaska, there's a little cub that's being born from a mama bear, and God is watching it all. He's on the other side of the moon right now. He knows exactly what it looks like. He sees the other side of Saturn. He's right at the center of a star. He knows it all and he knows everything about your life. The Bible says he can count the number of hairs on your head, which is easy for him to do with me. (laughs) Not a big deal, but he knows everything, every thought I have. He knows all about me. I mean, I love this. Think about how joyous it must be to be God. It's it's. Dallas Willard said that he came upon this view of a beach. I want you to think for a minute about the most amazing view you've ever seen in your life. Think about the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. God is seeing it right now. When you watch a sunrise or a sunset, Stacy and I were up at British Columbia, Vancouver, a couple of years ago, and there's this one spot everybody goes every night to watch the sunset across the water, mountains. It's the most beautiful sunset we've ever seen. God sees it every night. He's the one who's painting that thing. But Dallas Willard said he stepped out on a beach one time through this clearing out of the woods and he came upon the most beautiful scene that he'd ever seen in his life. And he said, and all of a sudden, I felt really happy for God because he sees this. And a billion other images and scenes like it all the time. And that's what he's telling Job. He says, I'm sending rain to play, I'm making flowers grow that no human will ever see. We talk about gratuitous evil and suffering. You know, meaningless, seemingly meaningless suffering. What about gratuitous grace? What about meaningless love? He's saying, Job, you're going to need a God like me. You're going to need a God like this. Who's so much bigger than you. You're going to have to trust me that I'm at work in your life. You're going to need a God that you cannot understand. You can't put me in a beaker. You can't measure this. You can't put me on a scale. I'm not the answer, man. I am the answer. And I want you to come to me, and you're not going to get there by figuring me out in your head. Because I am way beyond that. And so after all of this heartbreaking loss, we come to chapter 42. And at the end of the book, I told you we'd go all the way through here today. And we're going to come back and unpack this because there's so much more here. He says this, then Job answers God after this amazing moment here. He says, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Your purpose can't be stopped. Who is this, he's, he's, he's talking about himself, that hides counsel without knowledge? I, I have uttered things I didn't know anything about. I've been speaking in ways that I don't know or understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not speak. He says, you you said here and I will speak and I will question you and you make it known to me and you did. And then look at this. This is the most amazing, perhaps, verse in in the whole book. After chapter one, when he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse five, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's saying, man, I've been right-sized by God Almighty, and that's a good place to be. This is why the book is terrifyingly beautiful and beautifully terrifying. It places us right where we need to be before holy God. And so we're going to close our time We wanted to give some space and time, not for you to rush out of here for the most important moment, I believe, of your week to respond to God, to be reminded that he is good, that he loves you. I love what's happening here. Job is he's wanting an intermediary. He's, He's wanting someone to adjudicate for him. And so we wanted to pause for a minute and just remember this uh, as the band comes up and gets us ready, as, we, as we're going to sing to the Lord here in just a moment. This story is the story of all of us. And, and worship is the portal into which we do see God. I mean, it's amazing that he would say, uh, I'd heard about him. You know, I'm going, no, go back to chapter one. You said, blessed be the name of the Lord. You lost everything. He said, nah, I'd heard about him. Now I've seen him. Isn't that what you want in the end? Don't you want to see God? Because when we behold him, we're transformed by him. When we're reminded of his great love for us. But don't miss this. We all need a mediator. We all need an intermediary. Somehow Job knows, he says, my redeemer lives. And one day he will stand upon the earth thousands of years before Christ shows up and Jesus comes, the great mediator comes and he stands on the earth and he lives the perfect life on our behalf. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time friends listen Job doesn't get all his answers and you won't either he gets something better he gets God and he discovers that that's enough so I want us to pray would you bow your heads close your eyes I just want us to pray together don't let your mind run we've got time To worship him. God is a person. Capital P. He is one to be loved. And enjoyed. He's not a formula. Or a puzzle to figure out. He's a person to be. Worshipped. To be loved. He is the answer. What are you walking through right now? He says trust me. I'm at work. I'm good. Friend, be reminded today, God is good. He's holy. He's sovereign. And He's at work in your life, even, and yes, especially through the challenges and the suffering and the pain that you're walking through today. You can trust Him. Lord, remind us how sweet it is to trust in You. Even as we proclaim maybe aspiring words that we want to be true of us. We know that you're good. We know that you're loving. We've seen it. Lord, teach us anew how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. You have become our mediator. You have walked through pain and suffering. You've gone to the cross on our behalf. You've taken our shame and our blame. You died so that we would never die. And you rose again so that we might be raised up in a new life and live for you in victory, even in the midst of suffering. So we love you, Jesus. We give you our lives.